Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, uh, Seekers Christian Fellowship family. It's such a a pleasure for me to be with you. I I thank your pastor, Ronald, for the invitation to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you today. And realizing that while I am the one who is given the pleasure of being able to prepare and dig into God's Word, it's the Spirit of God who is going to take His Word And he's going to shine the spotlight into all of our hearts. And he will touch different areas, some which you might already be leaning into as you've been walking through the book of Nehemiah as a family. And others that will surprise you as the Spirit of God nudges you and sees how he wants you to be more fully formed in the likeness of the Lord Jesus himself. So that you individually and collectively as a church can demonstrate what grace looks like. What it means to have this relationship with God through what Christ has done. And how it's changing your life. Your home life, your family life, your personal life. How it's being demonstrated in wonderful ways amongst your colleagues and friends and context so that Christ can be read in your life as the scripture says that you're a living letter and people around you will say oh that's what a Christian is oh that's how it works so what I'm going to be reminding you of in chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah is even as Pastor Ronald shared with us previously last week that it's up to us to develop the disciplines In a similar way, one of those disciplines is that when we look at the Word of God, we say, Spirit of God, speak to me personally. What is it, Master, Lord of my life, who has bought me at the great price of your own son's Jesus' blood and death, and given me new life through the demonstration of the resurrection? Death couldn't hold him. And grace is empowering you, forgiveness that calling to walk with Jesus. So you need to take the word of God and you need to do what it says. So open your Bibles if you have them with you, whether it's on your phone or laptop as uh, Pastor Keith has uh, shared with us and led us this morning in music. I must tell you that those uh, songs were so good for my own heart today. I hope they were for yours. Because it just reminded me of things that I might otherwise not think of in the way uh, the writer and the way that it was uh, set to music. So you've been on this journey in the book of Nehemiah. And this lesson is that God expects us to apply his word by doing it. That's the first focus that we need to understand. God expects us as his followers To not only know the word of God, to hear the word of God, but to do it. One of the tragedies, in my opinion, that is gripping the Western church is the elevation of knowledge over practice. I like to put it this way, that we have fat heads at the risk of a withered heart. 
Because knowing the truth doesn't mean you're going to do it. I mean, every parent knows this, don't, don't we, as parents? Because we will say to our children, are you listening to me? We don't mean, did you hear my words? What we really mean is, are you going to do what I just told you? Because I made it so patently obvious in what I told you that I really expect you to comply. It's called obedience. You do what you're told to do by those who have authority over you. So being God has this authority, he's bought us with the price, we are ransomed by him, we belong to him, we're under his ownership and authority, are we doing what he says? Well, let me put it another way. The average North American Christian, in my estimation, is educated beyond his obedience. He knows far more than what he's doing. The challenge we really have, if you'll accept it, is to do what God has told us to do. It's obedience. And the best application of God's word was written in a slogan by the Nike company. Just do it! No, that's get in the game, have fun, play. Oh, friends, we have so much more at stake as believers. Just do it isn't about playing a game. It's about living for the glory of Jesus. Just do it. So right away you know that I'm sinking deep into your heart and I'm saying, are you practicing what God has already told you? Have you listened? Are you responding? Are you applying? Are you obeying? This is not a unique test, uh, message to Nehemiah or to the Old Testament. James, who is leading the church when it's under tremendous persecution and scattered broadly all over the world, imagine it, not being able to go to church. Well, you don't have to imagine it. That's what's happening. You're scattered, not by persecution overtly, but by an illness. You, you can't gather. And so he's writing them and he's reminding them. In, and in his first chapter, he, he says, but don't just listen to God's word. It's about verse 22 in the text, as I recall. It's going to be on the screen. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. Oh, you know what that's like. He gives the illustration. You look in the mirror, you see, and you go, oh, I should change that. And then you're distracted. You do something else and you forget whatever it is you saw. The word of God is a mirror and we see ourselves in it. Not only should we see the distance, we should see the opportunity and make the change. Jesus taught his disciples with the same powerful pattern written into his teaching. Not only does he say it in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 20 when he says that this is the call of discipleship, not only to go and tell, but to teach them to obey everything I've said. Do it. We teach people to do it. So this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46 to his attenders, to his listeners. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, he says, and not do what I say? In other words, you're calling me who I am. You recognize that I've come from God to teach you. Why then would you call me by a title that you empty by disobedience? In other words, Jesus is saying, just do it. Just do it. Is God already, through his spirit, beginning to nudge you, prepare you not only to listen, but reminding you that practice the spiritual discipline of applying God's word to the areas of your life is paramount? 
It's what we're called to. So in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, the serious commitment that the Jewish people in Jerusalem and Judea are going to make after the forgotten word of God. Remember, they haven't been listening to the word of God. They haven't had it read to them. And so they stand. Imagine this. They stand for three hours while the Torah, the words of Moses, are read to them. Three hours. And sometimes we're shifting after 30 minutes. Three hours they listen to the word of God and they mourn. They confess their sin for hours after. They repent. They tell God they're guilty. They haven't done what they should have done, what they're called to do. And then they make this vow. And they strengthen it with what they call a curse, meaning, God, you should do everything that you've already done to us and scattered us if we don't obey. Because we're showing that we're not honoring you with all the advantage we have, the temple of God, the people of God, the culture that God has given us. We need to do what you say. They made this serious commitment. Read it with me. It's, it's down in verse, uh, uh, verse 28, the first phrase, then the rest of the people, meaning that the leaders led them. And there is a demonstration where leadership needs to take the first step. And they do. And then it says in verse 29, the rest of the people. And what do they do? They join their leaders and they bound themselves with an oath. They said, this is what we're committed to do. And they swore a curse on themselves. If they fail to obey, the law of God is issued by Moses. And they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, not just the ones they liked. You know, we would rather sign on for selective obedience. I'll take nine out of the ten commandments, thank you very much. Uh, this one's a little hard to do, so I'll, I'll just excuse myself from that. No, they say all the commands, all the regulations, all the decrees of the Lord, we're going to do. Whatever you say, God. That was the noble cry of their hearts. And it is the cry of God's people to Jesus. You bought me. My identity is as one who was redeemed. I no longer have authority in my life. You are my authority. That's the Christian. I'm not in charge anymore. And occasionally we need to be brought back to that basic foundation. There is a God, you're not it. There is a Lord, you're not that either. We are his. And we do what he says. We'll do it. They were not just listening as they stood. They were willing to obey. So what were the commitments that they made? And there are several. They said they were going to practice marriage as a covenant between believing people. Secondly, they would keep the Sabbath holy. And thirdly, they would practice the tithe. And there are a number of tithes that are mentioned. The temple tax, the giving of the 10%, the contributing to the ongoing work of the temple. So what do we learn from these commitments? This is really where we see the application of God's word from the Old Testament, and then we want to see it through the lens of the gospel. So we'll be asking ourselves some questions. Does God have the same expectation of us in the New Testament under the new covenant written in the blood of Christ that we celebrate in the symbol uh, of communion as he expected his people 
as they kept the freedom that was now theirs, having been led out of Egypt, with the covenant of the Passover. Are the obligations the same? Well, let's ask and answer those questions. The first is in marriage. They say to themselves in uh, verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters, or not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. In other words, we want to see our children from this point onwards marry those who know the covenant of God and keep it. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the teaching actually might surprise us. Because if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and just read there these amazing words uh, of Paul applying the principle of who we are in Christ to how it is we're going to live within our cultures. Because in 2 Corinthians, he reminds us again of this same principle that we belong to God. So at verse 14, we read, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He doesn't say just in marriage covenant. He says in any kind of partnership in which when you bind yourself to someone who doesn't share the commitment you have to Christ, you will discover that it will empty your heart because they won't respond as you respond in faith to Jesus and as you live out your faith in relationship with others. So let me tease that apart a little bit more. Because Paul is making such a clear point to the Corinthians. He says that in verse 14, and then he says, So what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, or the devil, or uh, those idols that are leading us away from God? What does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? It's a great question. Because at its heart, it is saying was we're not to be consumers. We are to be those who are liberated under the gospel as those who invest themselves for the glory of God in everything we do. And that is not the way the world thinks. It's not. The world is thinking about advantage. The world is thinking about how to... Uh, self-actualize <laughs> and we as believers are saying no 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 the key word for us is obedience and submission we bend our knee and we say whatever you want done i'm going to do because your way is the path of life my way has led me into darkness and corruption so this is not a lens by which we view the world and say as a result the world is altogether bad and i'll never meet good people in it no we are saying having been changed by the gospel in partnership, covenant relationships, I'm going to be very careful how I bind my life because it will influence my direction. It will limit my freedom. It, it says as God's family, we set ourselves apart for him and his purposes. And so we have to ask ourselves this in life and business. Does this person who is asking me to join them in this commitment, be life, business, marriage, or any other deeply tied relationship, share God's kingdom values or not? Marriage may be the easiest way to see this lived out and maybe in some ways in our culture the most dramatic. Because if we turn again to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see there very briefly 
what God is saying to us as those who enter into this covenant relationship with another human being. And we're free to choose whoever we want. Now, this is an amazing thing. God does not say it has to be blue-eyed and blonde. That might be your thing, but that's not what he says. It could be dark-haired and brown-eyed and a beauty or handsome. He says you're free, but there's one caveat. Choose a partner who is walking in the same direction in serving Jesus. Because when you do, this is the instruction he gives, and it's so different than the world. He says it in Ephesians 5.22, he begins instructing wives at that point and says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I have to tell you, if you read that out at a coffee shop somewhere, there will be gasps of horror. What are you talking about? How draconian, how old-fashioned, how wrong that a woman would be asked to submit to a man. Now, it would be scandalous, except Paul writes it this way and says, just as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. You see, it's rooted in the gospel. It's not rooted in an ideal or a theory. It's gospel living. Now, it flies in the face of current cultural shifts, doesn't it? And these can be hard words to hear, certainly hard words to share outside the family of faith, especially if they're taken out of their context. And the context in Ephesians, chap or in Ephesians chapter 5 is actually verse 21, which is often not read. So you have to read this to really understand it. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. What? No, that means, and the outworking of it would be in a place like Philippians chapter 2, where he says, you should prefer one another as greater and better than yourselves. Oh, my goodness. Now, just a minute. I might have been a Christian far longer than the guy beside me. And I need to practice a kind of submission. Yeah, what does submission look like in that context? It means I seek his good at my expense. When you think about it, that's what Jesus did. Actually, that's one of Jesus' commands, isn't it? By this, all men will know you really are serious about following me if you love one another as I have loved you. Right? He's serious about this. It's radically different kind of living. It's not about what do I get, and we might enter the church with a consumer mentality, but we cannot leave the message of the gospel with that mentality. It will change us. And we'll move from being a consumer to a generous giver, and that's going to come up a little later again. Do you see then, he says, husbands, this is how you are to demonstrate your love for your wife. You're to do it just as Christ loved the church. Well, well ask yourself a question. How did Jesus love the church? He gave up his life for the church. So you see, you cannot separate these two things, and men in the pulpit should never be saying to wives, submit. You know, men doing that to women is awful, but Jesus doing it to us all is quite acceptable. Because what he's saying is, wives, let's get this straight. You need to demonstrate a yielding of your rights in marriage because you're not two, you're now one. And it's not about being self-actualized, it's about being a new union. And you're going to live in such a way that you lose your own identity and choose a corporate identity that seeks your partner's good above your own. And he says, now, husbands, 
Understand this. You're now under the gospel. So how are you going to treat your wife? Harshly? Arrogantly? Demandingly? Powerfully? No, you're going to do something quite remarkable. You're going to surrender your life for her good to the point that you would lay it down and die for her. Do you see they're both submitting? He's submitting his power for her good. She's submitting, as it were, her identity for his benefit. They're both submitting for each other. Now, when you understand this, your marriage sings a different song. Because it's possible to go into Christian marriage with a view of the world. Look what I'm getting. And be a consumer in a Christian marriage. But could you imagine locking yourself in a partnership where one is a consumer searching always for the best deal and one is a giver come what may? You can see how awful that would be. And so this is why we teach. This is why we teach. That when you link your life to another person, be sure you have a common, shared identity, purpose, agreement of how you live. That's what he's saying. And the people said, yeah, we get that. We're going to do that. We're going to do this in marriage. This is why Paul says to all of us, you're not your own. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God with what he's redeemed. And that's all of you. Body, heart, mind, strength. All of you are bought. The second thing that he addresses in Nehemiah chapter 10, if we look at that passage again, is he, he deals with the idea of the Sabbath, Shabbat Shalom, the day of peace and rest. We have Nehemiah and the people saying, yes, we're going to keep that unique day in Israel, which is Saturday, the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, first day being Sunday, seventh being Saturday, and we are going to remember we're no longer slaves to Egypt. We now belong to God. Well, that's what the Sabbath is. And that's why work is forbidden. You don't have to go to the field. So don't choose to go to the field. Choose to give the day to God. And honor him in your heart, in your mind, in your freedom. That's really what the Sabbath is. We also promise, we read in this passage of Scripture... Um, in verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on Sabbath, they'll find that we don't go shopping because we're honoring the Lord and we can shop any other day, but we won't on, on the Sabbath. We won't buy for them or on any holy day that's given for your glory. And every seventh year, we're going to forgo working the land. We're going to cancel all the debts. We're going to set all those people that are indentured workers. We're going to set them all free. We're going to take this seriously because you've set us free. That's what they commit themselves. So now here's the question that we need to ask in the New Testament. Is there a Sabbath for the Christian? And the answer clearly is no. We are not bound to any day. Now how do we know that? Well, because the scripture teaches us that clearly. If we have a look at the, the, the book of, uh, of Romans, we would say in, in the same way something one day is more holy than any other, while others think one day is alike. Each of you should be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. Now, he doesn't say you should choose no day. 
He doesn't say that you shouldn't choose a point of worship. And for us, the convenience is to worship on the first day, the day of resurrection and new covenant, is what Jesus has given us. But is it a rigid Sabbath? And the answer is no, it's not. It's a freedom to pursue. And if we neglect the gathering of ourselves together, we're going to miss the important value of listening to one another. Recite the scripture. Teach us what it is that we need to be reminded of and to practice again our faith as we're being told that we should be doing. But in Romans chapter 14, it's, it's dealing not only with the freedom we have in the Sabbath, it's really dealing with this idea of our freedom in Christ to pursue every day as a holy day to God. And every day should have a portion of worship, a prayer and adoration. It's not limited to one day, but we would be foolish to ignore the day that the church gathers. We would do that to our harm. So he says we need to be convinced in our own mind. He says not only should we be convinced in our own mind of what day we should worship, we should also be convinced in our mind the freedom we have to eat food. Whether or not we can go to the agoras in Greece and, and buy from the butcher shop when we know it's meat that is just offered on a slab to an idol. And some say, no, I cannot, no, I cannot, I, I can't do it. Well, you need to be respectful of that and not force a friend who's coming to your house for a meal to say, oh, I got such a deal on this meat because it was just offered to Apollo. What's Apollo? He's nothing. And you feed your friend. He goes, well, I happen to think that these things have power and influence in our culture. And what are you doing? He has a weaker conscience. You know idols are nothing. Jesus is everything. So he goes on and he says, you should not use your liberty as a means to hurt the person who's walking along the same path. You see, what he's saying is you should surrender your rights for the need of caring for the weaker brother. Now, sometimes what happens, and I've seen this in the church, someone who has no right to call themselves weak uses this text to try and control someone's behavior. That's wrong. That's not what this is used for. That's just a misuse of the text. Unless you want to say, yes, I'm so weak in my conscience, I have no freedom, I really don't understand the difference between Jesus and idols. Idols are nothing. But for some, and I can give different illustrations of this, uh, I, li I like First Nations art. I think it's beautiful and different and unique. But I've had friends in First Nations background, born in First Nations community, who have said, I, I can't go there with that mask because when I go, that mask talks to me. It has a demonic power in my mind and my culture. And I know you like the art, but if you have that mask on your wall, I can't come into your house. I can't do it. Now, is he weaker in that instance? Yes, because his memory is putting that in a piece of art. But for him... I need to respect that, don't I? Because I love him. What's a mask? I can take it off and put it in a trunk. If this is my friend, his friendship is more important to me than art on my wall. Right? That's what we're saying. My liberty in Jesus should not wound another follower. Very powerful. Important principle. Because he says, look, we're not living for ourselves. We're, we're not dying for ourselves. Whether we live or die, it's for Christ's glory. It's not us. We're bought with the price is what he's saying. 
we belong to the Lord. Then in chapter 14, down at verse 13, he actually says this. So let us stop passing judgment on one another. Oh, for heaven's sakes, stop playing the criticizing game among yourselves. Who's winning by it? They don't serve you, they serve Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we don't correct. That doesn't mean we don't teach. What I'm saying is criticizing is something different. It's where we're comparing ourselves with ourselves and trying to gain ascendancy because of what? Our growth, which is all led by the Spirit and the Word and Jesus. You see how false it is, how foolish it is. So Paul is saying, as an extension of what we've read and understood about marriage, this isn't about you. We must first think about Jesus, his leadership, honoring and glorifying him. And there's a lot in this. But do you see that the application of God's word to life is that our priority is to honor Christ and secondly then willingly give ourselves for the benefit of those who are weak and beginning to mature that we would not do anything that would cause them to stumble or fall because we love them in Jesus. We love them. So I need to tell you when it comes to food, when I went to Indonesia, I was fed dog. Did I receive it? I did. Did I like it? Not much. Did I eat it? Why? Because the hospitality in which it was given said it would be wrong for me to not eat their food. And I've eaten iguana in the Philippines, a lizard. It was actually very tasty. And another place I was serving, I was given a fruit bat to eat. And I ate it. It was curried and delicious. Now, when I bring those recipes home and say to my wife, we have to eat these things, uh, not a chance. <laughs> we all have preferences, but you understand what I'm saying. When I go to Pakistan or a Muslim country, I would never tell them what I've just told you, that I ate a dog or a bat. It would be offensive. It would hurt them. They would think, what, what is this craziness you're talking about? Because they're still saturated in their own mindset. And the world said, we have to be careful with these things. Even though they're highly entertaining and you've all laughed now that I've told you what my diet has been as I've traveled. But you understand what I'm saying. I will love my brothers and sisters in Christ so carefully that it's nothing for me to abstain from this or that for their advantage. Now, the third thing that he talks about here is tithing. And he says in, in uh, the people say in Nehemiah, we're going to take on the responsibility of doing all the things you've asked. In verse 32, there's a temple tax, which means I will convert some of what I make in life if I'm not being paid a wage, and I will make sure that that temple tax is always paid every year. And every year, the second thing I'm going to do, and this is verse 35 to 37, is I'm going to give all the tithes, 10% of everything I grow, of everything I harvest, of everything I grind, of everything in my life. Everything that I gain, I'm going to take 10%, I'm going to give it to the temple. So here's the question. Is the tithe of the Old Testament demanded in the New Testament? And the answer is no. Actually, more is demanded. And it isn't demanded in the sense that you must do this or God's favor won't rest on you. It is 
why would you not, if you are completely bought and redeemed by Jesus, do less for Jesus in the kingdom than the Old Testament does under the law? In other words, you're not required to give 10, you're free to give more. So here's my advice. Give 11%, give 12, give 15. Give a tithe and then choose to give gifts. Things that would advance because you can and you want to. Because in giving, you advance something that others are doing for the glory of Christ. Now, I want to suggest to you that the principle of giving generously is well known in this congregation. Pastor Ronald and I were talking about um, the liberty, the generosity of the congregation. And he was actually saying to me, it's wonderful that our young people have caught this. Uh, that makes me really encouraged. And not setting myself up, but I remember as young people when my sister and I were still at home, but now we had our first jobs. Uh, I was first started cutting lawns on Saturdays, and then I moved for that and worked in a grocery store, and she began to be uh, a receptionist working for the BC Tell Company at that point. A telephone operator, we called her. So she was making money, I was making money, and we looked around our church and said, you know what? Those baptistry curtains are really shabby. So quietly, without telling anyone, although I'm telling you new now, we bought material and went to a seamstress in the church and said, would you sew these into uh, curtains? Well, actually, we went to her first and said, what material would look good? What do you think? We were thinking gold velvet. She said, beautiful, align them. And mysteriously, with knowledge of those who looked after the building, new curtains appeared. My sister and I sat there, good South African term, feeling chuffed, happy that we had contributed to something nobody knew about. And everyone said, oh, ooh, oh, those are nice. And we went to God's glory in a place that we use for teaching and gathering. And we began looking around and doing a few other things. You understand what I'm saying? Because the people of God care about advancing the knowledge of God. They want other people to know. And there's practical things. One of the things I'm so excited about is the project that this church is engaging through Pastor Ronald in Lindula. I've been to Lindula. I walked the property. We went down and we thought, oh my goodness, we, we need to do more here. We dreamed a dream. Two little boys, Pastor Ronald and I, dreaming dreams. We were like boys in a candy store with a nickel between us and a whole vast array of candy. What could we do? What could we do? What could we do if we had a dime? That was our thinking. Now I'm here to tell you, you know it. There's a project ongoing for a structure that will give opportunity for the gospel to advance in Sri Lanka. In addition to what's being done sponsoring children, Oh, I love these stories. I'm engaged in it myself, Don and I. Because when I look at those little, lovely brown eyes gazing up at me, I think through the gospel, we're changing the future of children. You're doing that as a church. It so impressed me, I'm joining you. And when I met widows, I'll never tire of telling you the story and thought of my grandma. No one caring for them. And giving this handbag that was sown with love for them. And in it was a new sari and a slightly used sari. 
and maybe some sweets as we fed them dinner. And we were handing these out, and I thought, oh, if someone was doing this for my grandma and she was in this place, I would be so grateful. God, thank you that you put it on the hearts of your people to care for widows, orphans, children, displaced, marginalized, needy people. I visited the row houses in the tea country. Oh, my goodness. The needs are so great. The people so grateful. And I thought of you and just blessed you that you're involved with this because you see, you've understood that the church scattered as James had seen them scattered. Uh, James writes to the same church that is pressured and dispelled across the kingdom under terrible circumstances. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means this, that you care for orphans and widows. Church family, you're called to be generous. Church family, you have been to this point generous. Don't stop. Apply the word of God. Think clearly through what it means to give as you've received out of gratitude and saying, oh God, I'm so grateful that through the sweat of my brow as I've worked this way, you have so blessed me that not only am I living well, I have enough to give and give and give freely. One of the corrupting influence of the world is to believe that what we have is our own, but it's only on loan. Paul reminds us throughout the New Testament, you are stewards, means you're given a trust. It doesn't belong to you. It's Jesus. Use it as a good steward. Yes, we earned it. Yes, he blessed us. So as stewards with the trust, we give time, we give gifts, we give resources, because they're God's. And so we care to those who have fallen in difficult circumstance, and we do so generously. So here's what the people signed on to. They said, because we know who we are in, in God in the Old Testament, we're going to take serious the marriage and relational covenants. Secondly, we, we are going to be those who take seriously the word of God as we live within this culture, and we are going to demonstrate we are his by the day we keep. And thirdly, they said, we are going to tithe because your glory is in residence in the temple of God in Jerusalem. So what about us? Here's the application. We are his bought with a price. And so in every relationship where a partnership would impinge on our covenant, we'll be more than just cautious. We'll likely say no. Because we want to be linked with those that are going in the same direction and purpose to glorify God. Secondly, we don't have a day, but we are going to demonstrate that we are bought at a price and we're going to glorify God as the church meets and not neglect gathering together. And we are going to be free to worship on any day and every day to the glory of Christ. But we want Christ to be seen in how we gather, meet, learn, and disperse. Thirdly, we are going to be generous. So here are my sets of questions and applications. Jesus expects his people to hear and do what he says. What is one thing that you know God is talking to you about that today you could write down 
and say to yourself, I'm committed to this because he's told me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to keep doing it until it is a discipline that doesn't require any practice. It doesn't require any thought. It doesn't require bringing my will into submission because it is my will. I'm going to do it like that. Secondly, how are you living out your commitment as one united with Christ? Do you see your spouse as the object of the love that Jesus has given you? It'll transform your marriage when you do so. Ask yourself, are you preferring them above yourself? Are you seeking their good at your cost? Are you willing to lose yourself in that joint submission for the benefit of the partner that God has given you? That's your freedom. And that's how it can be fulfilled. Thirdly, how is Christ seen in your freedom to worship? Are you using your freedom to build others up wisely? Or do you insist on your freedom to the potential harm and hurt of others? There might be something there that you want to decide. Fourthly, are you living out the generosity of Jesus as a good steward? Have you increased your giving this year because you can? Not just squirreling it away for the rainy day, but taking advantage of the opportunity now. Maybe God is already speaking to you about that. There would be something there you could choose to do and write to yourself. In Nehemiah 10, the people listened for hours to the word of God and said, hearing is not enough. We will do it. May we, as the followers of Jesus under a new covenant, do the same. Listening is not enough. We will do it. Father God, your spirit through your power and enablement, who he is, God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father and Son, is living within every child that has received Jesus, every one of us, who loves you, has been filled by you. And now you're doing your work. You're convicting us. You're convincing us of righteousness and the direction we should go. You're reminding us of commitments we've made that have grown fallow. We're not doing them. And you're asking us to renew our covenant relationship with you by being obedient and practicing and applying your word. So would you, would you, for Jesus' sake, increase the pressure? Not so that we would feel dominated and judged because we've been forgiven and welcomed into the family and we're part of you forever. But would you so move within us that this kind of revival would be seen and demonstrated in our hearts? Oh, that's how Christians live. Look at how they love each other. Look what it is they do for the poor. Look what they do internationally. Look how they are convinced that all that they have belongs to the God who's redeemed them. There's something there I should seek. May it be so, we pray among us. In Jesus' name, amen.